this series that I've entitled Unstoppable. We're going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, or portion by portion. And we're in chapter 6 today. It's a short chapter, um, but there's a lot to it. And so I want to unpack it uh, and, and get to some meat of it. Um, but before I do, just one more time, um, let me pray for me. Father, I thank you for the opportunity you've given me to be at this place, at this time, sitting on this stool with these people, interacting with your word through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you give me clarity and precision. And I pray that you would open our hearts, that we would respond, Holy Spirit, to what you want to do. Draw us into your presence with a responsive heart. May your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it already is in heaven. In your name, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. In Acts chapter 6, what we see is the development of the church's ministry, the development of its leadership, and what we see is really the beginnings of the persecution of the church that will lead to the expansion throughout the world. It's an important chapter. It's a pivotal chapter. It's not very long, but there's a lot to it. And so uh, as we go through it, I'm going to give you a little context before I give you some content, but we'll, we'll go through it together and see what God wants to say. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Let me give you a little context. The Hebraic Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, two groups of people in the same church. The Hebraic Jews, were think of them as the old school Jews. Uh, they were the traditionalists. They spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the Old Testament. Uh, and they were countered with the Hellenistic Jews. Jews, though Jews from the diaspora, the dispersion around Jerusalem, uh, who spoke uh, Greek and who embraced Greek culture. So you had the Hebraic Jews who were seen as the holier-than-thou folk. We know what those people are like, right? That's why you're here. Uh, and then we had the Hellenistic Jews, and they were kind of the, the compromisers with the more liberal society. Now, though Rome was in charge politically, it was the Greek culture that was really driving the bus culturally. And so the Hellenistic Jews were kind of seen as the compromisers with this very uh, liberal culture. Both of them are followers of Jesus. Both of them were in the church. But there was a budding division that was happening within the church. Let me just push pause right here on Acts 6 and explain something to you about the heart of God the Father. We go back to Proverbs 6, and in Proverbs 6, we're told by the writer that God uh, hates six things and then adds a seventh that he says God abhors. So there's six things that God hates and the seventh that he absolutely abhors. And you can read about those if you want to in Acts, or Proverbs 6. But the thing that God abhors, the seventh thing that was added, that the writer said, no, no, now these six are bad, but this seventh, uh, God don't play. The thing that God abhors, according to Proverbs 6, is discord and disunity in the church. Go back to Proverbs 6, 19. The thing that God, the seventh, God hates six, abhors the seventh, one who sows discord among the brethren. God will not contend with division in his church. So strongly does God feel about that, that he gives instructions to church leaders in the New Testament about people who cause division within the church. And what he says is this in Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once, warn them the second time, and then send them to the Baptist church down the road. says, look, seek to reconcile, warn them, 
and, and then go, go with the second step and warn them a second time. But if they, if, they, if they receive warning and still are divisive and cause disunity and disruption in the church, out-counsel them. Invite them to go somewhere else. Do you know the Bible said that? That's my job as a leader. Sometimes to out-counsel people. Listen, if you can't support the ministry of the church and the leadership of the church, leave and go find one you can. The, the book of Hebrews says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this. Let them watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. Because that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, it, it, I, I want you here. If you can be here. But if you can't support the ministry of the church and leaders of the church, find one you can and be a part of that church. Get in a church, support it, be involved in it, serve it, give to it and through it, and invest in the kingdom of God through that local church. Uh, hear me, I want you here, but if you're here, you have to understand the expectation and the responsibility that you will, if you stay, you support it, you're involved in it, you serve it, you give through it. And if you choose not to, that's fine. I encourage you to go find a place where you can. It's biblical. You understand? And so what was happening in this first church is there was this budding little contention between two groups, two parties. And it, the, the unity of God's church is so important. It's our testimony to a watching world. And God will not contend with division and disunity of the church. And the leaders not doing their job if they allow it. And so if this budding rift, there was a discrepancy in what? You remember? In the food, but the daily distribution of food. Here's one thing I love about the way they did it. It was a daily distribution. Here's what I love. It wasn't like come once some of the first Saturday of every month and we'll give you a big box of food and you take it home and then be fat and lazy for the rest of the month. It wasn't a, a Saturday, every Saturday come down and give your, your, your food for the week. It was every day. They had to make their way from their house through the city, fighting traffic, wait in line, and get the food. I love that. Why? Because the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And there's got to be some work to this. It can't just be flat out, here you go, you're lazy, stay lazy, do nothing. you got to work your tail off maybe to get some. I like that. There's responsibility involved, the daily distribution. So if you want to eat every day, work every day somehow. In the daily distribution of food for the widows. Now, I also love this about the church. The church took responsibility for the widows in the body who didn't have help from their families. There were some widows that didn't have family. And for those widows that didn't have family, the church took responsibility. But it wasn't... The, Old the New Testament instruction for the church was this. If there is a family member in need, that family must support that person in need, not the church. And the Bible says that if that family doesn't support their own family who's in need, they're worse off, for, they're worse off than an unbeliever headed for hell. Look, when your family's in need, the family takes care of it. It's not the church's responsibility. The church's responsibility is to take care of those who have no help who have no family. So there's a lot of nuance to this daily distribution of food that maybe we miss just with the flat reading of it. So for those who have no help, who have no sisters, little widows who have no family around anymore, then the church steps in. And, and notice this too, that, that there was an oversight here. There was this little group of ladies who were being overlooked, but realize it was... It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't oversight. It was just a mistake. There's nothing nefarious about it. When we have discrepancies with each other, we can approach it from one of two scenarios. 
we can approach it from the scenario that gives the benefit of the doubt. Look, like this is probably just an oversight. I don't think there's any nefarious, you know, in nefarious intent. Just relax. Or we can approach it from the perspective. Oh no, no, no! That was wrong. That was deliberate. Because I, right? Did you know that the that that the the devil's number one goal in the church is to stop and limit the church's ministry and witness in the world? And so with this, just consider this first church for a moment. It's starting to grow. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. There, people are coming to faith. And the first, the first thing the devil tries in order to stop the ministry is persecution. I mean, in the, in the first five chapters, how many times have we read that the apostles and Peter were, were, were arrested, were warned, were, were threatened? In, in the last chapter, they were beaten and flogged with 39 lashes, Right? I mean, some of the same flogging that Jesus went through. It was brutal. And what did it do? All the persecution they went through, it just made them more bold. It just made it, I mean, they're like a tick just digging in, like, go ahead, give me more. And I'm going to pray for more boldness to do that very thing that got me in trouble in the first place. Get, let's go. And the devil's like, well, it, that ain't going to work at shutting it down. So the devil changes tactic. And the devil knows if... If, if fights from outside the church doesn't shut the, shut the church down, certainly fights inside the church will. You understand? And all the devil has to do is start these little seeds of dissension and disunity and, 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 and fights within the church. And most church people are so ignorant to the schemes of the evil one that they fight with each other. And the entire power and witness and ministry of the church is stoppable. Do you see his tactic here? Let's go to verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The leader's central calling of the church, the leaders are the, the pastor's central calling, is the ministry of the teaching of the Word and prayer. And it would be wrong for them, and they assert this, so that it would be wrong for them to neglect that call and that purpose and that priority in their lives in order to do the practical needs of the church, in order to meet the congregational needs, the pastoral care, the needs of the facility. That's not part of the pastor's primary job. The leader of the church job primarily is the ministry of the word and prayer. The primary job of the what we call pastoral care, the facility stuff, all the all those all those tasks, the primary job is those in the church. That's your job. And the church that understands this and practices this becomes unstoppable. God did not call the apostles to do everything in the church. They had two jobs. Minister the word and prayer. Here, here's how this works. Let me, let me explain this to you about the church. God wants people in the church to do the work of the church. That's your job. And, and most churches get this so backwards. Most churches think that their pastors are the ministers and the people are the administers. And so the people, as the administrators of the church, tell the pastors what job he has to do. And that's not biblical. What I see in Scripture is the pastors are the administers and the people are the ministers. As the administrators of the church, I have two jobs. The, 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 the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. And all I do is ratify what you do. We're going to see it in this chapter. And, and, and their response to the congregational needs, that was a real need. Their response was, you handle it. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. One of the things that indicates to me that they understand, that I understand, 
that unless you sit in this chair, you don't understand, is how all-consuming the task of preaching and teaching and prayer is when rightly done by the pastor. Until you have worn these shoes and sat in this place, you have no clue at how all-consuming a task it is of the ministry of the word and the prayer done rightly as a pastor should. They understood that. And they said it's not right for us to neglect that because it is all-consuming to do other work of the ministry. Now, I've been around this church thing for a long time, and one thing I know about people is people never change. And I no doubt there were some in that congregation who thought, you know, those apostles ought to give more direct attention to those little old ladies and handle the congregational needs a little bit better. You know how I know they said it back then? Instead, rightly so, biblically, they expected the daily, weekly work of the church to be done by the people of the church. That's your job. Now, I am very, very thankful for so many of you who do the daily and weekly work of this church. I'm so thankful for you. Every Sunday morning when I show up, there are a few guys who are so incredibly faithful doing ministry. And when I see them, I tell them, thank you for your ministry, because it is ministry. They set up all the tables, these umbrellas, the, 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 the rooms. There's another group that comes in with the, the, the coffee and the eats and stuff. Also, we can come in and just be. I'm so thankful for so many of you who serve faithfully and regularly. For those who serve in our children's ministry, children's ministry is the most volunteer-intensive ministry in any church. And we have so many committed, faithful people, some who are taking care of their own kids and some who don't have kids who just serve. The ministry of the church, it's beautiful. Our youth ministry is growing like crazy right now. And we have people, we got new people coming on board in leadership with us who don't have kids, who are just serving and ministering. It's fun, it's fantastic. Our, our adult studies, people are saying, look, let me do this. Let me do this work of the ministry. It's, it's wonderful. Our, our tech crew, most of them you don't even know, who just tirelessly, week after week, during the week, provide for it all. I'm, I'm so thankful for so many of you. This whole facility's got to be taken care of. Guess who does it? Some of you do. It's, it's, it's amazing. And then for these special events, Harvest Party is coming up. So many of you volunteer for the special events. I'm so thankful for you because you're starting to understand that the work of the church is done by the church. We have a wonderful opportunity for some of you who aren't involved to get involved on Sunday morning with the junior high kids upstairs. This is a great group of kids. Unless you want them sitting in here every Sunday, I don't know if that's where you want to go with this. But I also understand that there's a lot of you who feel as though you've already done your time in the past. And you don't got to put in time anymore. And I get it. You did your time when you had kids. You don't have kids anymore. I, I understand. Well, I did my time at my other church when I was there. You know how involved I was there? And you come here and it's like... Just understand, there's stages of spiritual growth that we all go through. It, this is common. Let me just walk you through quickly these stages of spiritual growth. You decide where you are. There's a resisting stage. You're like, yeah, I'm, I resist all things spiritual. I, this God thing, I don't have anything to do with that. And hopefully it leads to this seeking stage where you're like, well, I don't know, there might be a God out there. I'm going to do some research and, and seek and find out which one I think I believe in. And then there leads to a questioning stage where you're like, well, if, 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 if Christianity is true, what does that mean? Is, is Jesus really the only way? And hopefully the Spirit keeps working on you and you get to this place of response. 
And after all that resisting, seeking, and questions, you come to this time of response where you say, I do believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, his resurrection, and I'm going to respond in faith and accept him as the leader of my life. And the moment of that happens, the next stage is this adjustment stage where you start realizing, though I have faith in Jesus, there's a lot of things in my life that have to change now, right? And you start making those changes. And if you grow past and through, and as you go through that adjustment stage, you come to this stage where most people get stuck for the rest of their lives spiritually, and it's called the adolescent stage. Adolescents, think about them. Adolescents, they think they're older than what they are. They think they know everything they need to know. Uh, they think life is all about them and what's fair and right for them. They're very difficult to correct. And they really don't have a mindset about serving anybody. It's all about them. And what happens is most people in church get stuck at the adolescent stage spiritually. You think this whole thing is about you, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and so if something goes wrong, then something is wrong. You think that you know enough already, you're very difficult to correct, and you don't serve much. I mean, when's the last time an adolescent junior high son went to his mom and said, Mom, how can I serve you today? Can I clean out the dishwasher? Can I please do my own laundry? Can I make you dinner? When does that happen? It doesn't. Because adolescents don't serve. And the only way, and spiritually it's the same. And so the only way you get out of the adolescent stage is by serving. When you realize it's not about you, it's about everybody else around you. And so you invest your time, energy, and passion in other people. The work of your hands serve other people. That's how you get out of the adolescence stage. The problem is there are people who can be in church for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years and never go out of the adolescence stage because they think it's all about them and they don't serve anybody else. The problem with the serving stage, you can grow into the serving stage, but you don't go past the serving stage when you realize you're saying stuff like this. Well, this is my ministry. This is my class. This is my room. This is my kitchen. This is my soundboard. You're stuck at the serving stage. And the only way you got to the serving stage is by the reproducing stage, where you reproduce leaders, you reproduce ministers, you reproduce Christ followers by leading people to Jesus. Most people never make it there. And if you're fortunate enough to walk with Jesus and have maturity, you realize that through the reproduction stage, this is a stage called maximizing stage, where God coalesces all of your strengths and energies and gifts and skills and gifts into this very narrow laser-like focus where all I am is focused on this one, this, this singular task in ministry in the world. And all of my skills and experiences and God's giftedness is laser-like focused in this one area. And this is where, this, where you are living in your sweet spot. And if you're fortunate enough to get there and live long enough, you may arrive at this last stage of spiritual growth called the celebration stage, where you get to look back at the legacy of your life and see the wake of kingdom stuff that's behind you and just celebrate all God is and all he's done through you. It's, it's incredible. But most people never get there because they're stuck in the adolescent stage and they will not serve. Keep that in mind. Brothers and sisters, I'm going back to verse 3. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The, uh, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They said, choose seven men. Why seven? Seven days of the week, daily distribution of food, seven days, seven men. So one person doesn't have to do it all. Everybody gets to do something. Full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you need both to do ministry. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But realize, these seven men all had Greek names. Why? Because they were Greek widows who were being overlooked. So they choose Greek people. Those who are close to the need meet the need. Do you understand? And so here's the deal. Similarly, if you're close to a need that exists in the church, you should be a part of that ministry. So guess what that means, parents? You're close to those needs of children and youth stuff. So guess who gets to do that? But also, if you have an interest in that area, you get to do it too. So you don't have to be close to the need, but if you're interested in it, then you do. Full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. 
wisdom because they have to be practic- they have to be capable practically. You have to be wise. Like, don't be ignorant about what has to happen here. Let's, let's do this with some order and some wisdom. But full of the Holy Spirit because of the danger of division. So let's handle these needs with wisdom and discernment of the Holy Spirit so we don't further exacerbate the division. Right? They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. They laid hands on them and prayed over them. Why? Because practical service is spiritual service. Please understand that. Practical service is spiritual service. That's why when I say thank you to the guys who are sitting up every Sunday, I try to say thank you for your ministry. Because it's very practical service, but it's spiritual service and it's ministry. It's the same Greek word in the Bible that was used for distribution of food, the practical service, and the same word used for ministry. They both just mean service. Practical service of waiting tables was considered the same as ministry service. It's ministry. Nowhere in Acts 6 are these seven called deacons, though they function in the role of deacons. The word deacon in the Bible just basically means servant or menial servant. A deacon is, it does not mean those who sit on church boards talking about ministry. Deacons of the church are those who wait on tables. So let me just tell you this. If, you're, if you ever come to this church and think you want to be a leader in this church, uh, fine. Start cleaning the toilets. Start vacuuming the carpets. Start repairing the holes in the walls. Menial service is what deacons of the church do. And it's all spiritual service. When I was down south, this guy my age, I was pastor of a church, and he came to faith at my church. We became very, very good friends. He was a former Marine, an incredible businessman made um, probably about 10 years ago. He sold his business. His goal was to grow it to a certain size, sell it, and just retire. About t- 10 years, about a decade ago, he, he grew it to where he wanted to be. He sold it for millions and millions and millions of dollars and had all this residual income from real estate stuff coming in and could just absolutely sit back and do nothing. And he decided that he needed to keep his hands and feet involved in ministry. I was so proud of him. And you know what his ministry is? This multimillionaire man. You know what his ministry was at the church where he went? To hold the babies. I, I, I came here and started this church. He's the one who gave us the first video projection units we ever used. He, he, he gave us a ton of money. Uh, a dear friend. And he, when I came to start this church. He went to another church. He said, hey, I, I got a ministry. I'm doing it. What's your, what's your ministry? He said, I get to be a baby holder. He loved being a grandpa. And he got to every Sunday go to the nursery and hold babies. Love this guy. And Wednesday, right before I went to football practice, his daughter called me and told me that he woke up in heaven. And I'm convinced that my friend Bill, because his focus was on eternity, is going to get to embrace in heaven some of those babies he held on earth after they have lived their lives and accepted Christ, that they'll finally get to meet the man that held them as infants. He was so focused on eternity. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. See, in what could have been a very divisive issue, Those who were involved deserved a lot of credit because they didn't let it get divisive. Those those who who worked in in this situation in Acts 6 had an eternal view they didn't get wrapped up in the, in the problem of the moment. Those with the complaint, instead of complaining about it, instead of whining about it, instead of bickering about it, instead of getting together with people who had the same mindset and opinion as they did, they made the need known, 
and they trusted the leadership to handle it, and they got their hands off it. And the Hebrew group, they recognized the legitimate need that was among them. They recognized the oversight, and they didn't get defensive about it, and they didn't try to defend themselves, and they didn't try to prove how they didn't do anything wrong. They said, no, we get it. Sorry, our bad. And let the leaders handle it and got their hands off it. Those seven who were chosen, they accepted the call and responsibility of what seemed to be a very unglamorous act of service, helping little old ladies once a week. And the apostles responded to a need that was real without being distracted from their primary responsibility and role. And the result is what? The word of God spread. When we read in the first verse that during this time, the, 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 the word of God, incre- the, the church increased, it uses a word called multiplied. I want you to understand God's math. All through the book of Acts, in the first four chapters, God adds to their number daily. God adds to their number daily. God adds to their number daily. So God adds, 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 and then God subtracts. Chapter 5, subtracted two people, Ananias and Sapphira. Got them out. And as soon as that happened, now chapter 6, God multiplies. This is God's math. God adds, God subtracts, God multiplies. Please understand this. Spiritually, it's the same thing when you're in my life. God wants to multiply in our life. He wants to multiply his power. He wants to multiply his work. He wants to multiply his hand in our lives, but he can't do that until sometimes he subtracts. There are some things in your and my life that God needs to subtract from our lives, that we need to subtract from our lives so God can multiply what he wants to do in us, through us, and with us. God may need to subtract some habits. You may need to subtract some issues. You may need to subtract from your life some habits. You may need to subtract some hangups. You may need to subtract some people so that God can multiply. Some of you are so, some of us are so focused on, God, add this to me, add this to me. And God says, I don't want to add, I want to multiply, but I can't multiply until I subtract. And sometimes what God has to subtract is people from our lives. And that's okay for him to do. And if we don't allow God the freedom and authority to subtract what he must subtract, we will never get to the multiply. The one thing God never does, he adds, he subtracts, he multiplies. The one thing God's math never does is divide. Do you understand? And a church that understands this and allows God to do this attraction so that he can multiply becomes unstoppable. Now, I want to wrap up the last part of this. And it's a good little chunk of scripture, and there's so much I could say about it, and I'm going to limit, I promise, I'm going to limit my words. But there's a couple of things I want to to point out. Just sit in this for a minute. Now, Stephen, he was one of the seven. A man full of God's grace and power. Those two things go together. Grace and power always go together. Performed great wonders and signs among the people. We're not exactly sure what they were, but whatever it was, here was this, this normal guy who submitted himself to, to, to menial service that allowed the grace and power of God to be reflected in his life and through his life. And through this humble man, God did miraculous signs and wonders. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders of the and the, of the uh, elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced what? False witnesses, remember that, I'm going to come back to it. False witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that of the face of an angel. Here's what's going on. These guys from the synagogue of freedmen these synagogues were all over Jerusalem. The, 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 the synagogue 
really came to, into being while the Jews were in captivity. They were away from the temple. They couldn't worship there. They couldn't teach there. And so they established these synagogues, these little places. Think of them as churches where they could go and worship during captivity. When they came back to the promised land, this, this, these synagogues continued to proliferate. In Jerusalem alone, at this time, there were over 390 synagogues. Think little churches. Over 390 in this one city of Jerusalem. And they were usually comprised around neighborhoods and groups of people who were similar to each other, and they would gather together with each other. So there was this one synagogue, the synagogue of freedmen. We think it was, had something to do with people from those areas that had been freed from bondage or slavery or whatever. And I won't go into the details, but what we believe is that this man named Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, was part of this synagogue. And they raised opposition to this new church, and specifically to Stephen. And they got together people to serve as what? Remember what the word was? False witnesses. Why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In all of Scripture, before this reference, and all through the New Testament, we have one Example of what a false witness is. It's part of the Ten Commandments, it's a big deal. We have one example. The example we have of it is during the trials of Jesus. When the authorities want to let him go, but the Jews want him crucified, it goes like this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could uh, put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two what? Two false witnesses came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Is that what Jesus said? Yes, it is what he said. If it's what he said, they told the truth. They didn't say anything he didn't say. Why are they false witnesses? Please understand this. This is important. Get this because we're all guilty of it. We've got to be very, very careful. They gave right information with the wrong implication. That's what a false witness is. A false witness is when you give right information but the wrong implication. They said what he said. Jesus was referring to his body. They implied it was up towards the temple. This is the danger. This is what causes dissension. When we bear false witness, when we repeat what is true information with our spin of implication. That's why we got to be very, very careful at little slights, at offenses. That we don't take an offense and add our implication behind it. It could just be a mistake. It could just be an oversight. It could just be a bad day. And all of a sudden we add our own implication to the offense and we get offended. Listen, just because someone's offensive doesn't mean you have the right to be offended. And when we add our implication to the text that we read, when we add our implication to how they sounded to us, when we add our implication to the issue, it's bearing false witness against a brother or sister. And when it happens in the church and it happens with Christ followers, it causes division which God abhors. Be very careful. Am I clear about this? I know I'm clear about this. Are you hearing this? They looked at Stephen and his face with that of an angel. It doesn't mean it was a little fat baby in diaper face. It wasn't a timid face. It wasn't an angry face. It was a face of one with complete peace and trust and confidence in the sovereign God and on eternity. Stephen was not wrapped up and consumed with the moment. His face was set on eternity. His heart and mind was drawn heavenward where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you see why that first church was so unstoppable? They were never focused on the issue at the moment. Their focus was completely and wholly on eternity. 
I shared this with my high school group on Sunday or on Wednesday. And I thought I'd share it with you. Some of you have seen pastors do this in the past. I've done this in this church in the past. Francis Chan is famous for it. Uh, Jackie's nephew. No, just kidding. I want you to think of this part of this rope as your life on earth. We're born, and for a little while, we really enjoy life because we don't know any different. And and we get into school, and we get involved in activities, and we start realizing what we like and what we don't like. And we get out of school or whatever and go into a, a, a vocation, and we work our freaking tails off. And we get stressed and worried and hurt and offended. And, and we, this is just a grind, just a grind, hoping that we make it down here where we can finally stop and enjoy life. Right? So some of you are, 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 are right about here. And, and, and you're hoping you get this much. And I hope you do. I really do. Some of, some, of, some, of, some of you, some of us are like right around here, and we're just in the grind of it. And we're hoping that we're fortunate one day to live long enough where we get to be down here and enjoy down here. And we end up wasting all of this, working for this one little sliver down here. And while we're doing all this, we get so focused and caught up in the difficulty, in the stress, in the offense, what didn't go right, what we wish would have been different, and the hopes that never came to fruition, the dreams that died, the people that left us, hurt, discouragement, stress, anger, anxiety, and we get so focused on these little moments that if it gets bad enough, we lose all hope. Because all of our focus is right here. Do you understand? And what happens is we lose sight. If this is our life on earth, we lose sight of all this eternity that's coming. Do you understand? And the Bible says, set your hearts and minds in heaven on things above. Eternity, where Christ is seated. Because when our whole focus is on this event and this offense and this hurt and this pain and this discouragement and this loss, and this loneliness. When this is all your focus is, you become stoppable. And when this all is all your focus, when it falls apart, everything crumbles. Stephen was in that moment. He was in that moment. And if all his focus was right here, but his face set as an angel on what was coming the eternity that was ahead of him and he became unstoppable the, the reason why you and I struggle so much with so much stress so much depression so much anxiety so much fear is because even as Christ followers, our focus is right here. The reason it's, there's so much sadness and grief, why there's so much loneliness and it leads to apathy and is because those who have this waiting ahead of us focus right there. I know you understand. 
And some of you are sitting here in this moment right now. And your focus has been right here. And God is calling you to focus here. I I tell people who are dating all the time, don't date anyone who doesn't help you focus here. If you're attached to someone whose whole focus is here, get out. I tell parents all the time, parents, if you have children, you make sure that you're drawing their focus here because their natural bent will be to focus here and it will destroy them. Some of you, God's calling you right now to change your focus. To heaven where Christ is seated. Christ followers, disciples, and churches who do that are unstoppable. Because what are you going to do? You're going to call me a name? You're going to offend me? You're going to hurt me? You're going to walk out on me? (laughs) That's like this time. I got this ahead of me. Do you understand? I know that God's calling some of you back here. Because all you've been is focused is here and it's killing you. And if you understand that, I want you to pray with me. If that's you, I want you to pray with me. I want you to come back I want you to come out of where you are and into where God has called you to be. Father, I thank you that you are with us in all those moments of this life, but you've called us beyond this life. I thank you that you've not neglected us, that you've not abandoned us in all of these little moments that we feel so painfully and so powerfully. But I thank you that you haven't called us to those moments, that you've called us to eternity with you. Forgive us for allowing all of these moments to be so overwhelming and consumed us that we have neglected our focus on eternity. It is killing us, God, and you're calling us back. Father, hear the prayers of your people that are coming back to you right now. If if, if this is you and you know it's you, I don't have to convince you that it is. You know it's you. With your eyes closed, just in this moment, I'm going to ask you to do this one thing. I just want you to slip your hand up. You know that your focus has been on the immediacy of the moment and the pain and the discouragement and the hurt. You know it has been, and you know your focus has not been on eternity. And it is overwhelming, and it is stressful, and it is scary, and it is hurtful, and there's depression, and there's grief, and there's sorrow, and there's anger. You know that you, and you know the Spirit of God is calling you back to a heaven focus. I want you just to slip your hand up. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna do anything like that. You just slip your hand up. You need to do this. I don't want to convince you, but you need to take these steps. Just stay here in this moment with me. The Bible says that God looks; His eyes range to and fro around the earth to find those whose hearts are fully His, that He might strongly support Him. As you come back to Him, as your focus comes back to heaven, away from all the pains and disappointments, comes back to heaven. You're turning your heart back to Him. He's looking for you right now, that He may strongly support you. Don't neglect this moment. Those of you who know that this is you, I'd invite you just to pray something like this in your own heart. Father, I'm sorry. 
that my whole focus has been so full of anxiety and disappointment, fear, grief, stress, because my whole focus has been on these moments right now. And I have neglected and lost my focus on eternity. Tell him, say, God, I'm coming back. I'm drawing my attention to heaven. Thank you that you won't neglect me in these moments, but you have called me far beyond. I'm coming back. Father, I pray over these in the church. I thank you, Father, for all the hands, for all the people who are realizing where they are and who they are and realizing where you've called us. Father, I ask that you would do exactly what your word says, that you would see them and turn your hand of strong support towards them, that you would remember them, that you would remind them that you don't sleep nor slumber in the moments of their lives that are difficult and painful, that you neither sleep nor slumber, that you care about those, but that you've called them beyond all of that. Far beyond. And that sometimes you use all those pains and difficulties and moments to draw our attention to their, our final home, our better land, where none of that exists anymore. Holy Spirit, I ask. In the strong name of Jesus. That you draw us back to an eternal mindset, an eternal focus. And then I ask that you would do exactly what you said you would do. Just turn your positive attention activity towards us. Thank you that we don't just have these moments in this little short span. Thank you that we have the assurance of eternity. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Samuel, let's sing.